Well, turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles for the last time, hopefully not forever, but at least for now, in our study to the story of the woman at the well, found in John chapter 4. John chapter 4, if you're visiting with us, we have begun a series working our way through the gospel of John, this uh, account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus given by one of his closest followers, the apostle John, and we are, after about 10 or 11 weeks, we are in chapter 4, John chapter 4, and today we conclude our work through this encounter between Jesus and a nameless Samaritan woman. And we've spent two weeks here already, and I can't unpack all that we've been through. Honestly, we could spend a lot more time in this story. There is really so much here. I think, in my opinion, this is one of the most powerful recorded interactions that Jesus has here on earth is with this woman at the well. But just by way of reminder, Uh, Remember, this woman and Jesus, for that matter, they came to this well thirsty, right? They came for a drink, a physical drink, but Jesus turned the conversation into a much deeper discussion about what fills us, about what was filling this woman, and about what should fill us, and what should fill this woman, And he directed both her and our hearts, our longings, our search for satisfaction in this life. He directed them to himself. As we just sang a few moments ago, he is the living water that satisfies. He is the temple, the place where we meet God. So let's pick up where we left off. I'm not going to reread the entire interaction, the entire story. I'm just going to pick up where we left off last week, which was verse 27, and we're going to read through the end of verse 42. Uh, It's our tradition here at Ascension, if you're able, we invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word out of honor for His Word. John chapter 4, verses 27 through 42. Listen as I read. This is God's holy word. Just then his disciples came back, and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, See a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, yet there are four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap 
for that which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Please go ahead and be seated. I'm going to begin with a question, kind of a funny question. What do cinnamon, college football, and soft jazz all indicate? Well, in the Hitchcock house, at least, those things are the taste, the sights, and the sounds of fall. Cinnamon, college football, and soft jazz. The season of harvest is around the corner. We've Got a lot of people missing this morning because of last-minute summer vacations. I know that some of you aren't ready for summer to be over. Summer is not over. It's supposed to be hot this week. But harvest, the time of harvest, is coming. Now, we don't use that word a lot in a non-agricultural society, right? The only time we hear the word harvest is when we're talking about some sort of a, a festival that we're going to at our children's school, some sort of harvest event. But in an agricultural society, the harvest, the season of fall, the season of reaping, was usually a time of great joy. Particularly if the crop was, was good and was full. And that's why I've entitled this sermon, The Joy of Harvest. You see, this is a passage about harvest. Of course, not in the sense of food and pumpkins and cinnamon, but in the same sense that Jesus talks to his disciples about fishing. Fishing for men. Fishing for women. Jesus speaks about the harvest to his disciples And the woman that he's been interacting with this whole time illustrates the harvest through her actions. Let me explain what I mean through two truths that I'd like us to meditate on and unpack for a few minutes. Two truths. And the first one is this. The gospel creates workers in his field. The gospel creates workers... In the field of harvest, whether they be sowers, whether they be reapers, we are all called to be active in the fields. As we return to the story this morning, the disciples, uh, they arrive back on the scene. They've been away. Jesus has been alone with this woman, and they return essentially from from grocery shopping. They've gone into town to get food. Verse 8 tells us that fact. And they are stunned to see that Jesus is here alone with this woman. They probably saw saw him interacting with her from a distance as they walked up. They're stunned. 
But notice that John records that they didn't ask any questions. They didn't ask two questions that were likely on their minds, and and John brings them up, maybe because it was on John's mind. They didn't ask to the woman, what do you seek? Like, what are your intentions with our rabbi? Why are you talking to him? They didn't ask that. They didn't ask Jesus, why are you talking with her? Really, Jesus, you're, you're speaking here with a Samaritan woman. Don't you know that your reputation as a rabbi is going down the tubes as a result of you doing this? No, they don't ask anything. John gives us the questions as if they're in his head, as if they're in their heads, but he, they don't ask. And, and we wonder why they don't ask, and I can't tell you why they don't ask. But it's curious to us, isn't it? I mean, did they, did they not ask because they trust Jesus' methods and instinct? Probably not. The disciples got confused quite a bit at what Jesus was doing, why he was doing what he was doing. They questioned him quite a bit. So they're probably not trusting him. Maybe their mouths were stopped from saying something offensive or stupid. I kind of like that one. Maybe the Holy Spirit just zipped their lips so that they couldn't do anything to ruin this wonderful interaction that Jesus is having with the woman. But it's interesting that John brings the questions up. It's almost as if John, the writer of this gospel, inspired by the Holy Spirit, uses these two questions as a, as a potential summary to the entire interaction that Jesus has had with this woman, right? She has sought water. That's what she was seeking. And she found something greater. He has sought her. That's why he's talking to her. He has sought her breaking down multiple barriers, multiple cultural norms, in order that he might lead her to himself. And the end result of of all of this is about to be displayed. Verse 28, the woman gets up and she returns to town and she starts talking. In other words, she is transformed. A couple of things I want you to see from our text this morning. Notice these couple things that happen. First of all, her original need, what she came there for, is just forgotten. And she abandons her jar. The jar that she came to fill for water. She, she never gets that drink. And for that matter, Jesus never gets that drink either. We'll come back to that. Now, some have made much of the fact that this woman leaves her jar at the well as if it represented the old ceremonial ways. We had that, we had that uh, indicator in the wedding at Cana, right? As Jesus used the old purification jars of water uh, to turn them to wine, and it was tied in with the picture that it was giving of, of who he was and what he came to do. I'm not so sure that we can make that close tie and connection. I think she just left because she was in her hurry. She was pumped. Her, her life had been upended. Her life had been disrupted. And she's got more important things to be about now than filling her water jar. But notice also that she goes into town talking. 
Remember, this was a woman that we assume was at the well alone because of her shame. Women didn't normally come to the well by themselves. They came with a group, but she had a sordid past. Her reputation was not great. The social stigma that she lived with was significant. And so she came alone, we think. And now she's back in town and she's laying it all out there. Hey, you guys know what I'm about. You guys know my past. I just met a guy who told me all I ever did. More than you even know. She seems to be the first clear person in in Jesus' ministry, particularly in the account of John, to be born again. She's new. We see here the power of the gospel to change, right? Overcoming her past, overcoming her story, her shame, her religion, all the the cultural forces and pressures around her. She becomes not just a new woman, but she had turned into a field worker. She had turned into, to use another word, an evangelist. Now there's a word for us. What do you think of when you hear that word evangelist? Maybe you think of a a TV personality, right? Preaching fire and brimstone. Maybe you think of evangelism program, like the four spiritual laws or, or something similar to that. I want the story of the Samaritan woman to steer us away from those conceptions. Conceptions of evangelism as a specialized thing for certain people and moving us away from evangelism as a specific kind of program that we have to master. This woman simply told her story. This guy told me all that I ever did. And then she invited people you got to come meet him. you got to come see him. Come. Come and see. It's an invitation that we find throughout the Scriptures from the Lord first and then reflecting to us as His people. Isaiah 1, 18, Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Isaiah 55, Come everyone who thirsts, Come to the waters. Micah 4, 2. Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways, and may we, we may walk in His paths. And then, of course, the words of Jesus. Come to Me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Come, follow Me. Even in the book of Revelation, at the very end of the story, Revelation twenty two seventeen, the Spirit and the Bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. Come and see. That was her evangelism program. She, she didn't have it all together. She didn't really know All the answers, she just found something that she needed to share. And her vulnerability, her sincerity, her witness, John tells us it was compelling. They believed her. 
They came to learn more, to meet this one whom she had encountered. Brothers and sisters, I'm speaking to the church. I'm speaking to you who know and love Jesus. The gospel creates these kinds of people. I'm not introducing today some new evangelism program. I'm not making some new evangelism push. I'm simply reminding us that we are all called to be workers in the fields of harvest. And it looks differently for all of us, depending upon our personalities, depending upon our gifts, depending upon the opportunities that we have, depending upon the season of life that we're in. But there is a commonality shown here through this woman of intentionality, of willingness to share our stories, of willingness to befriend others, and just to love people as best we can. And some of us are better than others at that. Some of you are better than me at that. Some of you are more extroverted and you're better conversationalists than me. And yet we're all invited to not only come and see ourselves, but to invite others to come and see. In order for this to happen, The sweetness of the gospel has got to be foundational in our lives. It's got to be. And that's why we preach the gospel every Lord's Day here at Ascension. That's why I encourage you, preach the gospel to yourself every day that you wake up and get new breath. Listen to this helpful quote from a pastor friend of mine. He says this, we only go out to seek others for Christ to the extent that we understand and believe that we have been sought by Christ ourselves. It's only to the extent that we appreciate the barriers that Christ has broken through in seeking us that we will break through barriers to seek others. It's only to the extent that we see and appreciate the vulnerability that Christ assumed to seek us that we will assume the vulnerability necessary to seek others. It's only to the extent that we have let our deepest needs and longings be met in Christ that we will be motivated to urge others to find their deepest longings and needs met in Christ. So this is a reminder for my heart, for all of our hearts, that we were weary, we were thirsty, and we have been given rest. We were walking in darkness, and we have been given the light. And so drink deeply of the gospel this day and every day. Now I recognize that in our day and age, the word evangelize and its accompanying concept of conversion, those aren't accepted words, are they? They're not popular words in our day and age. Right? You, you've got your truth. You can believe whatever you want. But don't you dare try and impose that on me. Otherwise, you're narrow-minded You're bigoted. I've even heard people say, I believe in Jesus. I believe in the gospel, but I just don't talk about matters of faith with my friends. And I think, really? Never? 
Like you never try to find a way to speak about important matters, to share your story of how you made it through a difficult time of suffering because you knew that there was a sovereign God who was caring for you. See, the gospel creates workers in his field, people who tell their stories. Their stories of their encounters with Jesus and then invite people to come in to meet him. And you say, but Nate, he's not sitting at a well. (laughs) I can't just invite people to come to my house and sit down at my kitchen table and talk with Jesus. My response to that is, yes, he's not sitting at a well, but he's here. He's here right now. He's in this place by His Spirit. Bring them here to hear His Word, to to meet His people. Oh, but Nate, they're not going to understand what we do as Presbyterians. I mean, we do like this liturgy stuff and we do unison readings and doxology and they're not going to understand That's okay. We'll teach them. We don't do what we do here on Sunday mornings because it's natural, because it's intuitive to the human heart. We do what we do on Sunday mornings because we're about doing what God wants us to do. We're about worshiping the way He wants us to worship Him. And if you need help understanding why we do what we do here, in worship, even in this, this dialogue that goes on. That's what it is, essentially, this morning, every morning. Our worship is a dialogue between us and the Lord who made us and saves us. Right? He speaks to us through His Word. We respond in praise. He speaks to us through His Word. We respond in confession. He speaks to us in His Word. We respond in song. He speaks to us through the sacrament. We respond as we go out and tell people to come and see. You see, this is the point of the entire story of this woman. The people will come to know Him to worship Him, to confess, as we read in the very last verse, in verse 42, we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. The Gospel creates workers in God's field. That's the first truth. And the second is this. Gospel work is good for the soul. Gospel work is good for the soul. In other words, it satisfies. Oh, it satisfies. As we move into these verses, as the disciples enter the conversation, Jesus confuses them with all this metaphorical talk. He's done the same thing with the woman, confused her with the metaphorical talk about living water. Now remember, Jesus never got that drink. And now his disciples have returned with lunch. But Jesus says, he's already full. (laughs) He's already gotten food, essentially. And the disciples are like, what? We just went to the store so that we could have lunch, and now you're saying you don't need food. Who gave Jesus food? This account is rich 
All of John's gospel, we're going to see, we've already seen, it's rich with Old Testament imagery, specifically Moses' imagery. And Jesus is almost certainly quoting here Deuteronomy 8.3 where Moses says, and he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus' priority above all things he is communicating to his disciples is the Father's will to glorify him, to do his work. And he's saying this because he's about to say, that his desire for his people is that we would reflect that heart. That heart for the will of the Father. That heart to glorify the Father above all things. That we would acknowledge that our lives are more than accumulating stuff. They're more than just pleasure. They're more than just comfort. But our lives are about service. Life is about gospel ministry. And that's good for the soul. That's what fills one's life. It's also good for the world. So brothers and sisters, in one sense, we are all, we are all in full-time gospel ministry. Not just me standing up here. Yes, I have a unique role as, as a teacher, as an equipper, but you, you are the ones on the front line, so to speak. Listen to how the Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon exhorted his congregation generations ago, talking about the goodness of, of ministry. Hold on, because you know how Spurgeon can be sometimes. He's intense. He says this, some of you good people who do nothing except go to public meetings and Bible readings and prophetic conferences and other forms of spiritual dissipation would be a good deal better Christians if you would look after the poor and needy around you. If you would just tuck up your sleeves for work and go tell the gospel to dying men, you would find your spiritual health mightily restored. For very much of the sickness of Christians comes through their having nothing to do. All feeding and not working gives men spiritual indigestion. Be idle, careless, with nothing to live for, nothing to care for, no sinner to pray for, no backslider to lead back to the cross, no trembler to encourage, no little child to tell of a Savior, no gray-headed man to enlighten in the things of God, no object, in fact, to live for. And who wonders if you begin to groan and to murmur and to look within until you are ready to die of despair? Let us have practical Christianity. Whew. Yikes. Jesus says the fields are ready for harvest. There's no need to wait. The sowing and the reaping, they're happening. And they're happening at the same time. The prophet Amos spoke of this. He spoke of such a day in Amos 9.13. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. 
And this leads us to two wonderful promises that I'd like to close with this morning. Number one, this is a process that you're not in control of. I'm not in control of. In other words, this is God's field. That's God's field. Gospel fruit is not up to you. I don't want you to hear that Spurgeon quote and feel like there's this burden on your back, this burden of guilt. I know many of you are doing the best you can. Keep doing it. Keep striving. Keep digesting the gospel every week that it might ooze out of you in little ways. Jesus is overseeing this crop. He tells the disciples here, I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Right? Only the Holy Spirit can bring about new birth. He has already been working in a variety of ways with those whom we interact with. Our job is to simply be faithful in whatever small way in the field that He has given us. See how wonderfully freeing this is. It's a process you're not in control of. It's not up to you. So don't feel a burden of guilt. Just be faithful in the field. And then secondly, each of our roles in people's lives is different. Remember what Paul wrote to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 1? He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. You see, some of us are working in the field and we're, we're, we're working on the front end. Some of us are at the tail end. Some of us are in the middle. In other words, some of us are, are tillers. <laughs> we're just breaking up the soil. We're just trying to create some room for something to be there. Some of us are sowers. We're planting gospel seeds through word and deed to ground that has already been tilled by others, by the Holy Spirit Himself. Some of us are waterers. We're, we're just given a little bit of encouragement just to keep that growth going. And then some of us are, are harvesters. right? Some of us are, are plucking and seeing that mature gospel fruit coming to fruition. But rarely... Rarely, even, even me, rarely do, do we see the whole process from breaking up the ground to plucking that gospel fruit. Particularly those of us who, who stay put for a while. I've been here 13 years, and I think, I hope, I have been a part of all of those roles in the field of harvest. I think probably many of you have been all of those roles in people's lives. But, but I forget sometimes. I get frustrated sometimes. Ask my wife. She'll tell you. I forget not only that it's not up to me, I'm not in control, that, but that my role in the field of harvest might be different than your role, might be different than another's. How encouraging 
the reminder that gospel work, for however long, in whatever way, is simply good for the soul. Well, the season of harvest is around the corner, but the season of spiritual harvest, Jesus says, is here. The fields are ready. Are we? May the Lord give us the opportunity, the boldness to play our part. Workers in the field for His glory and for our good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the testimony of this woman. For her changed life that just bubbled over, overflowed into those around her. Father, I pray for those of us who have been in the church a long time, for those of us who are far from that initial excitement of salvation. Restore to us, as David prayed, the joy of salvation. Renew in us right hearts. Return us to our, our first love that we might digest more deeply the barriers that Christ has broken through, the vulnerability that Christ has experienced in order to save us. That we in turn, in whatever way, Holy Spirit, show us, show Your people the ways that they can be tillers and waterers and sowers and harvesters in Your fields. Jesus, You are a treasure too good to keep to ourselves. Forgive us for so easily and so often doing that very thing. Give us Your grace. Give us Your Spirit. Give us Your strength, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.